0: Animals without guts, without mouth, without anuses, or with two anuses, (laughs) or some of them, they can actually form the anus only when they need to evacuate food from the digestive. So on demand, they can have nerves or no nerves. So it's just a a huge diversity, and that's what uh, attracts me, right, to understand all these different body plans of organisms that are very successful and that they're very different from us.
1: Welcome to the Illumina
0: Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman.
1: Well, hello, and welcome back to the Genomics Podcast, and a very special welcome if this is your first time tuning in. I hope you like our show. In Episode 63, we're going to talk about the biology of invertebrates animals that, quite literally, have no backbone. Typical invertebrates include insects, spiders, snails, clams, jellyfish, and many more. In fact, about 95% of all animal species are invertebrates. They've been around for hundreds of millions of years, and they play a huge role in the health of our planet. The evolutionary history of invertebrate animals referred to as phylogeny, has traditionally been informed by studying the physical form and structure of individual invertebrate species. But more recently, scientists have turned to molecular techniques, including DNA sequencing, to better understand invertebrate evolution and diversity. To illuminate this topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Gonzalo Girabet to the show. Gonzalo is Professor of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard College. He's also Professor and Curator in Charge of Invertebrate Zoology at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. Listen to Gonzalo discuss how he and his team use genomic and morphological data from living and extinct animals to better understand invertebrate evolution. So, Dr. Gonzalo Giribet, welcome to the Genomics Podcast. I really appreciate you joining us to talk about your work. So, why don't you start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. So, I'm a professor in the Department of
0: Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. And I'm also the curator in Invertebrate Zoology in the Museum of Comparative Zoology. So I've been here for about 20 years. And before here, I did my undergrad and my PhD at the University of Barcelona. And from there, I moved to New York City to the American Museum of Natural History, where I did
1: my postdoc. Interesting. So, your lab's interested in understanding animal diversity and evolution, right? Mm -hmm. And you use genomics technologies pretty heavily to address scientific questions around evolution and diversity. And you're really interested in understanding invertebrate evolution biology, which I think is interesting. So, we we talk quite a bit about vertebrates on the show, but we haven't ever talked about invertebrates. So, tell us a little bit about this group of, of organisms.
0: Indeed, most animals are invertebrates. Uh, vertebrates are only a small fraction. So, and and for people who are not familiar with invertebrates, that includes you know things like insects, arachnids, corals, starfish, jellyfish, all types of worms. So basically, every other animal that doesn't have a, a spine. And they have a huge diversity, lots of interesting anatomical features and body plans for example they have animals uh, without tissues animals that are able to basically separate or disaggregate all their cells and then rejoin them together to form an animal again wow animals without guts with a mouth without anuses or with two anuses. (laughs) Or some of them, they can actually form the anus only when they need to evacuate food from the digestive. So on demand, they can have nerves or no nerves. So it's just a a huge diversity. And that's what uh, attracts me, right? To understand all these different body plans of organisms that are very successful and that they're very different from us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, overall, can you explain what's you know what's important to understand about invertebrates in terms of biology i mean why do you focus on invertebrates when you're when you're studying evolution so obviously um, you know i understand that that
0: people are mostly interested in invertebrates because they they look more like like we are but our lives are so interconnected to invertebrates in, in so many ways i mean you can just you know, think of your your seafood plate, or when you're swimming in coral reefs, or when you're just going to to the market and looking at, at the clams and the snails, and a, l- a lot of the things that influence our lives, the the insects that pollinize our crops, or the the tiny soil invertebrates that are recycling all the. The organic matter in, in the forest so they really are around our lives obviously there's also parasitism and there's these scenes, some bad things too right? some bad things also but they're really all around us we've used them for drug discovery we're using them for for many other aspects that benefit our lives and, and also from aesthetic point of view i mean who hasn't been fascinated by watching a spider building a web or admiring a lot of the structures that, that are formed by by different animal organisms that are not invertebrates, like especially coral reefs and, and those structures, right? So so they're really important for us. And, and that's what always attracted me from them, you know, trying to, to really appreciate that part of the world that is very
1: different from from us. And when you're trying to understand evolution, I mean, is the idea that to understand evolution, to really understand it at a, at a you know, fundamental level you have to understand the evolution of, you know, the majority of the animals on the planet. Is that why invertebrates scientifically are
0: exactly right? I mean it it's very you know, I've I've pointed out at some of these these weird facts of invertebrates, right? Whether they have a nervous system or not. But but some fundamental questions in evolution is how many times did nervous systems evolve? You know, our old idea is that they only evolve once, but with the current resolution of the invertebrate tree of life it, it seems that it's possible there's been two different types of nervous systems, ones that evolve, you know, with different neurotransmitters in, a, in an early group of animals called comgellies or tinophores, And then the other nervous systems, the ones that we have and most other animals share, evolve with another series of neurotransmitters in in animals that actually didn't even have a nervous system per se. So you can only understand questions like
1: that once you have a tree where you can see how those features evolve in that animal tree. Understanding, studying evolution really has been going on for decades, maybe hundreds of years. Can you talk about the impact that genomics technologies in particular have had on this discipline? I mean, how has NGS, you know, impacted the, the role of, of scientists? Yeah. So,
0: you know, the impact is huge as in any other areas of science. First, you know, when I started working on trying to understand the history of life, most people use Morphological characters like they compare the morphological features of different organisms to understand that tree and and really early on for my PhD I started working on molecular systematics where instead of using morphological features to derive the trees we were looking at the DNA sequences right at the time we used uh, PCR and when was S- this was this like- so that was in the in the uh, mid 90s mid 90s okay. yeah, so we used PCR and and Sanger sequencing but we were only able to sequence a bunch of genes, and that wasn't enough for resolving some some evolutionary questions of processes that happened half a billion years ago, for example, right? With the explosion of animal life. Later on, we wanted to get away from using primers, so we started actually doing sequencing mRNA libraries, so we were able to clone uh, the you know the transcripts from the mRNA, and then sequence them again with Sanger, you know, this is in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, so so the, the use of the new generation sequencing at the time, now the high-throughput sequencing, right, was really instrumental because we had shifted from PCR-based amplification to sequencing mRNA, so, so once we started having, you know, first 454 four technology, and then we very early on adopted uh, Illumina sequencing, we were able then to, to do entire transcriptomes or, or large mRNA libraries at the time. So that was a big change because suddenly we had, instead of one or a handful of genes to infer these phylogenies, we, we had hundreds or thousands of genes that we can compare
1: across many different organisms. And there's just a related question. So when you were characterizing animals by morphology, and now all of a sudden, not just NGS, but all these molecular techniques came along. Was it clear that the morphology was more or less right, or did you find differences?
0: There were areas where morphology was right, and there were areas where morphology was wrong. But I would say also that there were areas where, where certain molecules were wrong. So the, the issue, I think, is that in, in morphology, we tend to give more emphasis to characters that we already thought they were relevant for reconstructing phylogeny, right? And with molecules, it's a little bit more naive. We just had what we had. So not all genes resolve everything, but sometimes we found results from molecular data that contradicted these these morphological phylogenies that had been in place for sometimes 100 years, right? Is morphology wrong? No, but just one set of characters had been given a lot of
1: emphasis, for example, segmentation or, or things like that. Interesting. So, I'd like to talk quickly about some of the research projects that you're working on now, and I'm really interested in what you talked about before, this so-called tree of life. So, can you explain a bit what the tree of life is and why it's really important for us to understand our own biology? Well, we're interested is in reconstructing this
0: tree of life or reconstructing the, the relationships between different organisms. It's like the genealogy of life, you know, what species is related to what other species. My research also focuses not on species relationships, but on higher clades, right? Are the vertebrates closely related to echinoderms? Or what is the the first animal group that's separated from the other animals? Are those sponges or tinophores? So we're trying to reconstruct sometimes species level phylogenies in, in spiders or daddy long legs, but mostly a lot of these, what we call deep divergences of, of main groups, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the things that have been Quite difficult to reconstruct, in some sense. This is where having hundreds or thousands of genes has really helped to uh, resolve some of those controversial areas. But there's still some that we need to resolve that haven't been resolved satisfactorily, I guess.
1: And what's the what's the challenge to resolving those? Is it just deeper sequencing, or
0: yeah? So so one of the challenges there is that uh, might be animals for which we don't have good genomic resources, and there could be different reasons for that, you know, groups of animals that are really obscure that only occur in very unique places of the world, or animals that are really small and and it's hard to get good genomes out of them. And these are actually some of the projects we're working on now, trying to increased genomic resources in some of these animal phyla, animal groups, where we don't have much data available because they're obscure, because they're
1: small, because they're remote. Um, do you have to go out in the field and collect some of these species? Yeah, we, we do a lot, which uh,
0: all me and my lab and my collaborators, we're you know, all the time going to weird places to, to collect these animals you know I've collected in, in all continents
1: in all oceans uh, yeah so <laughs> wherever the animals are I go there interesting what's the rationale the the value in you know incorporating transcriptomic data and genomic data and when you're trying to make these these discoveries about evolution why look at the the genes that are expressed as well as, as dna the reason for that is just an economic reason right we we
0: are zoology lab you know the funding for a zoology lab is not comparable to a biomedical lab so we depend on nsf funds and and those budgets are much smaller right so our reason for Doing transcriptomes is because we wanted to sequence or having genomic resources from hundreds of non model organisms for which we didn't have the budget to generate entire genomes, right? So, a transcriptome for us was a, a shortcut to a genome, you know, the ability of sequencing thousands of genes without having to really do the complex work of sequencing entire genomes, all the bioinformatics behind it. So, so it was really a shortcut, but, but now things have changed and, and we're able to, to do genomes much better, right? So we're beginning to do that by combining short read sequencing with long reads and also it's easier now to generate genomes from these smaller animals. So we're moving in the direction of doing fewer transcriptions with sequence you have a thousand transcriptomes in the lab in the last few years. So, really now we're trying to target genomes of important animals for which no one else has done, a, you know, a genome or at
1: least a good quality genome. Right, right. You've talked a lot about the progress that you've made in incorporating genomics and understanding these questions. So, what are kind of some of the challenges that you face? One is Money, right? We right. we're always trying to to raise money to do some of
0: these work. Again, it's much more difficult to justify, you know, investing a lot of money to do the genome of, of some of these animals that are very interesting from an evolutionary point of view, but uh, they they're not model organisms. They they're not going to cure cancer. Competition or, for resources. Know, competition right? Competition for resources. And the other challenges are that some of these obscure animals are, you know, they haven't become model organisms perhaps also because they have properties that make them difficult. You know, you can't culture them sometimes, or they're really, really tiny. So, Or velvet worms, one of the animals that I'm most interested in, for example, has genomes that are about 10 times the size of the human genome. Wow. So, so you know, they are technological challenges, right, of, of low-input DNA or very large genomes of or organisms that are more difficult to to obtain none of which are standard model organisms.
1: Right. You know, there's a lot of genomics tech tools available to you today, a lot of other tools as well. But over the next several years, how do you see the technology advancing? What impact do you think those advances will have on your work? I mean, what what excites you about the future? Yeah, I think that um, those advances are, are almost here.
0: I think we've been waiting for a few years, you know, from the the first animal genomes in, in the mid to late 90s, right, 1990s. So that was the C. elegans genome and Drosophila and all that. The genomes at the time, you know, caused it a lot of a hundred million dollars, right? And <laughs> so that was, not have that. You know, yet, we right? don't have that kind of money. So I think one of the developments has been obviously in lowering costs, right? right? With the new NovaSeq, you know, the, the amount of sequences that we do in the lab now—it's it's almost impossible to fill up a, a lane, you know, with all the data that we want to generate. Doing multiple genomes at the, at the time, transcriptome, ultra-conserved elements, and we're pulling, pulling, pulling pull to be able to run <laughs> just like the machine. So. Right? so the uh, the cost per base is so low now that it's just that's not a problem anymore. So th- I think that development made it here. We're still you know a little bit short on on long read sequencing, so we're adopting some of the other technologies. I think this is where where uh, Illumina is probably going to grow. That's very important, and that's what will allow us to do genomes of non-model organisms, yeah. right? So we. are now are doing these hybrid scaffolds of long reads combined with Illumina deep sequencing for those things, right? And then the, the low throughput or low input DNA actually, right? These these animals that are really small. So again, we're adopting some of the new techniques for single cell genomics. Oh, really? To to uh, obtain enough DNA. Do, you know sequencing of these really, really tiny animals, animals that, that measure about 100 microns in size. <laughs> That's pretty smart. They're really difficult to, to obtain because they're often in deep sea water. So just getting a few specimens alive and preserved to have okay quality DNA is a challenge, right? So wow. so working with low input, extending the uh, read length, you know, and keep making it cheaper will allow <laughs> us to have many more <laughs>
1: genomes for people like me, people who are zoologists, right? Right. So. right, Well, Gonzalo, I want to thank you for sitting down and talking with us. It's really interesting. I had no idea that, you know, invertebrates that we see every day could make such a huge impact on, on biology. So thanks for spending the time and joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's been a
0: pleasure. And I hope
1: that uh, people become more interested in invertebrates after hearing this. They will, I'm sure. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please subscribe to the Genomics Podcast. You can find our show everywhere podcasts live, and you can even ask Alexa to play the Illumina Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Catherine Wang. She's Associate Professor in the Community Health Sciences Department at Boston University. We'll be discussing genomics literacy, and the effective translation of genomic discoveries into clinical and public health practice. Right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.